Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we are going to explore Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 17. And this chapter is particularly important because it introduces some characters that have um, wide-reaching effects, not just in history, but even in contemporary religious conversation. And this chapter begins by having a little bit of a connection with the previous chapter. So chapter 15 was all about the covenant. And we saw that uh, part of that is going to deal with protection, that Abraham, or Abram, he's still Abram at this point, Abram is going to be protected, and this ritual that, that embodies the contract between Adonai and Abram and the ancestors takes place. But the other part was proliferation. That was supposed to be a part of the original uh, covenant as well. And that's not going so well. So here we are with Abram and Sarai, and they need to have a kid. And Sarai, we're told, still has not bore any children. And at this point, she appears to be one that is sterile, um, which, which isn't just uh, a medical, um, what's the word for that? diagnosis condition maybe yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's also it has very sociological and symbolic significance to it so being barren is not just a a a general physiological problem it's a cultural problem it's a religious problem you could even say Um, and that's a theme that that we see not only from, uh, and this is going to actually come up significantly in individual stories, the type cases, but also for Israel as a whole. So the prophets are going to use this image when they're in exile that uh, Zion or the daughter Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem is barren. And so we see it from the perspective of Israel's covenant is like barrenness. Um, But even you can make a case in the prophets, and and I think we mentioned this about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, that God sometimes um, portrayed as being barren. So here we have a story where Sarai, who is supposed to be the one proliferating the covenant community into its extended multiplicitous nation, and she doesn't have any children. And it's going to bring up this Egyptian slave girl, Hagar. So the fact that she's an Egyptian, is that important to the story here? I think in the context of where where were uh, Abram and Sarai recently? Well, they were in Egypt. Right. Well, what happened in Egypt? Well, you have the whole uh, Sarai being the sister thing. But as a result of what happened in Egypt, Abram kind of gets this bounty. Right. From his deceit, oh yeah, which included slaves and servants. Mm-hmm. So you can make a case that Hagar is only there because uh, Abram had this questionable decision making in Egypt that led to this accumulation that also then had these problems with Lot, and uh, now that's a part of this narrative as well. So oh, I, I do okay. think designating as Egyptian—that's at least telling us. She's probably from that event. Yeah, that and makes then we sense. can we can insinuate that ah that wasn't a good thing, and now another negative thing is going to happen because mm-hmm. this is all just spiraling out of control very quickly. Yeah, because now he's going to make another mistake 
or at least Sarai is. Right. And it has to deal with not trusting. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that's significant. Okay. Um, and then the, the first kind of action of the scene is Sarai, the, the voice of Sarai comes up and Abrams begins listening to the voice of Sarai, which for me is echoing Genesis three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. The right. man listening to the voice of the woman and I don't want to get into, so therefore women are always wrong. Um, but I do think that it's meant to mimic that um, we should sense, uh-oh, something's happening here because uh, they're failing to see things the way they're supposed to see them. Yeah, um, I think the story here would be problematic for a lot of modern women reading it because they might not understand why Sarai is doing this. It seems like a weird thing to our modern eyes to do, to give another woman to your husband so that she can have a child. But what's interesting to note about here is that this is actually a legal contract that would happen. It was not an uncommon thing to do. And it was based on an idea that um, they have found some tablets that explained the contract that could happen here. There's a place uh, near Iraq, modern day would be called Kirkuk. In ancient times, this place was called Nuzi. And they find these documents that support what Sarai does because there's laws that actually surround this particular transaction that's occurring here. This isn't just some whim of Sarah's. This is something that actually happens. So she gets to give her husband a slave girl to have a child for her. And it even says, that so that she can bear this child upon my knees. Now, part of the contract is that the woman gets to choose the the woman who is given to her husband. So I always imagine her picking someone that isn't desirable in any other way, but that she is fertile. You know, she's not pretty or young or necessarily or anything. But also, um, then this also puts the slave in a position to being elevated to a position of concubine. However, she, in the contract, is not allowed to try to usurp her mistress, and that's what's actually occurring here. Hagar is going beyond her legal mm. contract. Sarah doesn't have any right to dismiss her, even though she's doing this thing where she's trying to usurp Sarah's position, but she does go about then making Hagar's life so miserable that she wants to run away. So I'll let you go on with maybe the rest yeah, of that story. I, I think this is a story where our first in- initial reaction is, this is primitive, barbaric, mm-hmm. what the heck? And then we see what happens, and then we have to start kind of guessing at what's going on here. When, when really they're just this is a very normal thing. Yep, at least among people who are better off, well off people like they would have been. But those details are significant. So right. uh, now Abram waits ten years until this happens. Mm-hmm. That's important to know because that adds a lot of time. But it's also ten years while he was in Canaan. So he's actually in the land that he's supposed to be in. Um, But he's also surrounded by a culture that is not supposed to be Israel, you know, and that's going to be a problem later. Okay. But then also something that I pick up is in verse four, it doesn't describe their interaction between Hagar and Abram as knowing, which is how um, the intercourse was described back in Genesis 3 when uh, Cain and Abel were conceived. Mm -hmm. So it's not described as knowing. And it comes up twice in this chapter where uh, we're told, um, you know, take Hagar and go into her. And then he went into Hagar. And and that's what it's left at. So there's a very real difference between Abram and Hagar versus, let's say, um, Adam and Eve. Right. That's portrayed differently. And, and it's interesting to point out, 
So it's um, a different kind of relationship then? Is that what that I think it's trying to yeah. show us there's mm-hmm. a different kind of relationship sure. going on here. This is just about progeneration. Mm-hmm. And then that fits then into that, uh, that cultural reality because the issue that is going to come up is, you know, they need to have a kid. They're following the cultural norm. And then we have this issue of why does Hagar have contempt for Sarai? And part of the issue with that is uh, Hagar has now been elevated in status. They are more like equals than when they were when Sarai decided to use Hagar to have a child. Right. I imagine that's why that's built into the contract, because that would be a very natural response to the situation. Sure. And, and so and, and her, her reaction, too, is interesting. She blames Abram. Yeah. Uh, like, what did you do? Um, but there's a couple interesting things that could occur here within the reference to the covenant. So you have that cultural contract. But now within the covenant, this would mean that Sarai is going to be removed from that ancestry. Because if Hagar is elevated as a wife... Uh, she's no longer Sarai's property. And you'll notice that the response of Abram uh, is he gives Hagar back to be Sarai's property. That's right. how he chooses to fix it. And mm-hmm. so that kind of seems random to us. Like, oh, they're they're just trying to handle a marital dispute here. Really, they're trying to work out the details of this contract right. in terms of this covenant and the personalities that are in the way. And And then as you brought up, the next situation is that uh, Sarai deals harshly. That's what it says Yeah. with uh, Hagar. Hagar runs away. And this is a problem because that means the heir runs away too. Mm-hmm. So all of this stuff to finally produce an heir out, gone. Didn't work. Right. So then Hagar runs away and she ends up in the wilderness and a messenger of Adonai finds her and she's by this spring of water. And so there's a, this, this sense that she's alone except for the presence of God. And we actually get similar language here to Genesis three of, um, you know, we have to assume that the presence of the divine knows where Hagar is, but still insinuates, where are you? And so a lot of connections here happening with the, the, the first humans um, and I really do think that this scene is meant to mimic the first problem. So you had human overextension, especially with the not trusting, trying to find their own solution. And then the failed relational covenant between people. We're seeing a lot of similar problems. But because, because Abram reinstated ownership to Sarai, whatever heir that Ishmael is going to be from Hagar, that that's not going to be suitable. And so it's almost like we've uh, wasted that opportunity all because Sarah got upset and Abram tried to fix it and kind of went back on the contract. Um, But the whole situation still kind of gets redeemed uh, because Hagar's descendants still have a part of the covenant or their own covenant, covenant, depending on how we want to look at it. And that's where we're now introduced to Ishmael, um, which just means um, heard. So God hearing a cry from Hagar becomes the name of this person. And you should note it that God hearing a cry, that becomes a theme. So Ishmael's name is heard. And then Hagar gives God a name. 
which deals with being seen. And as a result of that, now Hagar sees. So it's really interesting language that becomes incredibly important in Exodus is by being seen and heard, she is changed. And that's actually going to be the same thing that happens to the people in Egypt. They are seen and their cry is heard. And that leads to the continuation of the covenant. It's just fascinating that that is put on Hagar, who is technically supposed to be outside of that. But there's a lot more stuff happening in this chapter. One of the biggest is that um, this spring of water, it's not random. There's significance to it. That's right. Anytime you see a woman by a well or by a spring, it often signifies that there's some kind of marriage proposal or promises are going to be made. This is what we call one of those type scenes that we were telling you to look out for, I think, in the last podcast, where it's a, a recurring kind of motif that will happen that lets you know in the story something important is about to happen. So this is what we would call the first annunciation scene that we see anywhere in Scripture. And an annunciation simply means this is where a God is telling a woman that either a child that she is pregnant with or a child that she's going to become pregnant with is going to be an important person. Um, And usually this happens in the form of an angel coming or some other message, perhaps a dream. Or in the case, for example, of Hannah, when she has Samuel, it's the high priest who lets her know that this is going to happen. But it does signal this idea. In this case, Hagar is in a strange limbo state because she's technically a second wife to Abram, and yet she's been driven out of the household. And so it's as if Yahweh himself now is going to give her the promises for her future children. And what's interesting about what the promises that Yahweh gives to Hagar is it sounds an awful lot like the covenant promise that's given to Abram because it says that she will become an ancestress of a mighty nation. So in a way, to the hearer of the story, you might almost think if you didn't know what was going to happen, you might think that this looks like Hagar is going to be the one to give birth to the heir, despite all these things going on. Well, the angel then tells Hagar she should return to Sarai. So she does. And apparently then she tells Abram about what happened, because when the child is born, Abraham names names the child Ishmael, and that's the name that the angel had told her to name Um, the baby when it's born. Like Tyler was saying, that the name was important because it had something to do with the situation that she found herself in, where she was both seen and heard by God. Now, according to Walter Brueggemann, who is a biblical scholar that I lean rather heavily on in order to research these things, what we see Hagar functioning as in this story as a reminder that the covenant promise has an opening to the other. We see that both sons will share part of the legacy of this, Isaac, as we know, later on becomes that covenantal child, but Ishmael does have a share in this, and that becomes more clear then as we see that both Isaac and Ishmael are present then to bury their father when Abraham dies. And we're going to see Ishmael show back up at the end of Genesis through the Ishmaelites. Right. Um, And another just a side note is anytime you're told about a people group and their origin story, you got to assume that they're going to be significant. Right. Or however the story is going to continue. That's the same here mm-hmm. with Ishmael. Um, and a contemporary um, significant point is that uh, Islam traces their ancestry back to Ishmael. So the Ishmaelites yeah. become this people group, this tribe, that eventually um, spurs the uh, identity of what becomes Islam. 
And so you'll, you, people talk about the Abrahamic religions, right? Uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Well, that's because Islam also traces their roots back to Abraham, except it wasn't Isaac. Ishmael was the heir. Okay. And that's the point hmm. of contention there. Yeah. So that's something to see both in reading the Bible, how the Ishmaelites will be important, but also just modern day religious scene, why why this story is significant. That's right. And, you know, reading the story even through a woman's eyes as well, we see kind of a power dynamic that you might see with people who are themselves suppressed or oppressed. And so we know that women back then didn't necessarily have a lot of rights, perhaps even in regard to this um, legal contract we've been talking about. But all this conflict arises out of the perception that this promise comes through Abram and Abram solely. And what we realize later on here, though, is that the promised heir has to come through Sarai. So she is essential to the covenant herself. And we'll see more about that in chapter 17. So Genesis 17 is both connected to Genesis 15 because we're going to get another uh, covenantal ritual, but it's also picking up from what just happened with the air back in Genesis 16. So you got to think about the progression that's happened. Abram is almost caught in this geopolitical turmoil and he's promised protection. And then we get a covenant um, ritual in response to that. But though Abram is protected, still needs to multiply. The The proliferation of his uh, ancestral line hasn't happened yet. And Genesis 16 just showed us more complications with it. So the promises uh, that were enacted in the Blood Path Treaty, uh, which deals with multiplication, receiving land, being protected in order for those things to happen. And we saw that Adonai signs both lines of the contract. And there's some vassal language in there. But now it looks like those promises are faltering uh, because there is no heir yet. And really, this is, uh, this is a human problem. It, it, it hasn't actually been Adonai's fault yet. It's humans not quite understanding how this is supposed to work or trying to take matters into their, hand, their own hands. And that's kind of how it's portrayed. Again, similar to Genesis 3. So now that situation is going to be corrected. And it's going to happen through more assurance that's given through another ritualistic, symbolic action. And this one becomes incredibly important because we're going to see some name changes happen. Um, and name changes were incredibly important, right? That's right, yeah. It's not just a handle. You know, it's not just picking a cute name out of the baby name book and that's what you call your child. Names were part of who you were. It was a trajectory of your whole life. And it was something that wasn't just with the Israelite people, but it was very much part of the psyche of the ancient Near Eastern mind. There were these death cults. So they were religions that were death-oriented in the sense that they believed strongly in what happened to you in the afterlife. And they believed that if you were to take someone's name and efface it off of their tomb, you weren't just cutting out their name. You were literally effacing them from the afterlife. So archaeologists will go in and they'll dig up these tombs and they'll go into the pyramids and they'll find these um, writings on the walls. And a lot of times they will find the former king or that former person's name has been scratched out. And that's why, because they think this is effacing this person literally from eternity. So this is an important thing um, that we have to keep track of. 
Abraham's name then is made great because he's going to have a continued legacy through his descendants. And then I want to point out that Sarah also receives a name change, and this is because she is the only person who's going to be able to be the mother of the son of that covenant. Yeah, so when you, anytime you're noticing, and again, this is, this is a theme, anytime right. you notice a name change, that means that somebody's identity is changing. Okay, so in this, in this respect, it's, it has a covenantal emphasis. All right, the, the, the covenant's finally going to occur with this proliferation of Abraham and his descendants and the multiplication, and that leads to a name change. And so identity changes, so does the name. It's going to be a pattern. You should pay attention to that. Right. But what is interesting about Abraham's name change and the whole experience we're going to see here uh, in general is what happens to Abraham and the change in name reveals that this is not just for Abraham. Um, It's Abraham becomes functional for Israel. It's no longer about just him. And so Abram is exalted father or something along those lines. Abraham is father of multitudes or father of many. And so what we start to see is that uh, the shift is occurring away from Abraham to the people who are going to come after Abraham. And one thing in particular I want to bring up about this, a word shows up here, um, blameless or perfect, depending on how it's translated. Um, but Abraham is told to walk blamelessly or perfectly before Adonai. And that's the Hebrew word tamim, which it's not really fair to tra- always to translate that as blameless or perfect in the way we think about it. It's better understood because um, we have a very static perception of perfect or blameless. Yeah. And it's this uh, moral, clean slate. Um, it's more about being whole, sound, complete. It's less about more conduct. conduct. It's, it's more about fulfillment. So how will Abraham be complete? Well, he's going to continue the covenant. That's what's put on Abraham's plate. It's really easy for us to take that and go, oh, so if Abraham breaks some sort of moral code one time, that ruins the deal. No, if Abraham refuses to continue the covenant, it breaks the deal. And again, this is about the whole notion of the tribe, not just Abram. The whole tribe is supposed to continue the covenant wholesomely, soundly, completely, so that it continues to get passed down from generation to generation. So it's less about some um, moral checklist, usually that we look at from 21st century eyes and go, these are the things you're supposed to do. And that's what Abram's being told to do here. And it's more of, do you live in a way that allows the tribe to continue? Again, this is pointing past Abraham now. Um, another detail is how many times... Does Abraham need reminded of what this thing is? Because again, it's like, remember, all right, here's, here's what I've said to you 15 times now. Yeah. But this has been a long duration of time. Mm-hmm. So Abram's not, Abraham is 99 years old at this point. Now his name finally changes after 99 years so it's been decades of getting the same reminder, and now now it finally happens. Uh, so I think it's fair to give him some grace that, you know, 
Yeah, I would think so. When you're 99, heck, I'm 56, and I can't remember things anymore. <laughs> but that, So that's something else that you see within this. And all of that is to lead up to this uh, climactic moment, which has become absolutely consequential for Judaism, for Christianity, just for continued culture in general. And it is this idea of circumcision. Because up until this point, the issue is the be fruitful and multiply. That's the one part that hasn't really seemed to happen And it leads to another symbolic, ritualistic part of the covenant that we call circumcision. That's right. There's this requirement of circumcision that all the males from eight days on have to be circumcised. And this is not a unique... not a unique thing to do to the Israelite people. It was fairly common among those cultures. The Egyptians did it, the Edomites did it, the Ammonites, the Moabites, all names that you'll hear us speak about at different times. But they're the surrounding cultures. But here it takes on a different meaning. It's much more significant. Here it takes on this divine ordination so that it's no longer just, for example, a custom of cleanliness, which it was in the case of the Egyptians. Or sometimes it would be a puberty rite or some things that would happen before someone got married. And so the timing has shifted from puberty or young adulthood to infanthood. And now it has become elevated to become the absolute mark of this covenant. So anyone who is not circumcised, it says, will be cut off from the people. So what you're telling me is that a person had to be cut off to prevent from being cut off. Yeah. I thought of that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that I'm not. It's the scripture. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm not the only one. That's good. Um, but yeah, so choosing not to participate in this, that actually removes you from the intention of the community. So how? what's one way that you would blamelessly and perfectly and wholly and soundly and completely walk to continue the covenant? Well, you're going to have to participate in this ritual. So hopefully you're seeing how that connects but the first symbolic action and ritual that we saw in Genesis 15 with the uh, the blood path, that was just with Abram, right? Mm-hmm. Now we get a ritual that is supposed to be a continued symbolic action for the entire ethnic group indefinitely. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is, again, you're seeing the shift. It's becoming less about Abraham and more about the whole people. Um, also, They are literally marked. Okay, so this is partly symbolic. It's partly, you know, just a ritual. um, But it's like literally physically manifested. Because circumcision is less about marking the person than it is the seed. And without having to draw diagrams or get into uh, too many uh, graphic details here, hopefully you're able to understand this just with... I hope you get my point there. The The marking of the person's body and the cutting off in that way meant that every seed that would continue their ancestral line was now marked. So the seed of proliferation, they're brought into the covenant. And so it's not about the person, uh, the, the, the progenitor of the seed, and it's also not something that the seed chooses. The whole covenant community is brought into this. And without sounding like a masochist, I really like this ritual. I mean, I mean, not going like, and so we should do it and you know, we should enforce it or anything like that. The meaning behind this, I, I think, is 
really important um, because the action is, it's meant to root the people of Israel in a covenant that transcends all of them. And in a world and a culture where faith and just being alive is so individualistic, this is about as corporate as it gets. By being a part of this tribe, this covenant, you are, it's like being a part of a family. You don't get to choose it, and your job is just to continue it by continuing the ancestral heritage. And so when you would get circumcised, they don't even care about you necessarily, except that you, like Abraham, are just a functional member of the continuation. The, the one who is getting marked, the seed uh, that will eventually come from you, they don't even get to choose whether or not they're part of the family. You know, you, and it's mm-hmm. the same with you. You know, whatever your last name is or, or you know, if you know your ancestral heritage, right. you didn't choose that. And yet your only job is to continue it. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think that's a, that's an interesting way that they uh, mark how this is supposed to work. And in, in terms of this then, when, when a person is conceived, they are, their conception is the continuation of the tribe. So, you know, the seed passes through the marked body, everybody good on what I'm referring to we know there. what you're talking about. Okay. Yep. At that moment, um, that person's in the tribe. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and again, think about this in terms of what we're seeing happen with Abraham. It's not just about him. He's a function to what's supposed to be occurring. So the point of this ritual is more about the covenant than the people. Also important with this, yes, only men are go through the act of circumcision. Every human being is marked, though, even the women, because they all are this, of the same seed. Right, so but that's true. I do mm-hmm. hear people go, oh, yeah, you know, those typical patriarchy, chauvinistic men, they don't include the women in this. Well, first of all, Judaism is passed down through the mother, Um that's that's a unique thing that I think is important. You would think this would be one thing that the women would be more than happy not to participate in, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, you guys yeah. finally have something you have to do that's painful and difficult. <laughs> but it, it is it is the case that when you see it this way, the women are a part of it. Sure. They're, they're part of the same continuation of the covenant life. Um, but you are right. Um, it is quite painful. <laughs> and I... I can't help but think like, okay, so Abraham walks up to his servants, who I imagine if he's 99, they're also, you know, at an age where they can feel pain. Oh, yeah. It's like, all right, guys, great idea. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> I got this flint here. You're going to bite down on this towel. Yeah. It's going to be good. I promise. There's actually a movie. It's got Jack Black in it. Um, and I I forget what it's called, like year one or... I, I don't remember the name of it. Um, and, you know, they're not a pain sponsor, so I don't have to get it right. Uh, where they just completely make fun of the scene <laughs> and what it do. would be like. And uh, it is kind of humorous. But um, the pain of it, I think, actually plays a role because of that cutting off the importance of that symbolism. Um, but also because this is about the the continuation of the life of Israel that's why we're also told within the text that this is to be a perpetual sign. And then we also, in reference to cutting off, we also see that word flesh again, which hasn't really come up a lot since 
you know, the flood narrative, it's showing up a little bit. Okay. Uh, and so cutting off also is a reminder of that tenuous part of human finitude that keeps cropping up. You know, how does God deal with the fleshness of humanity? Mm-hmm. Well, we're not getting floods anymore. Symbolically, that part of them, that part of that identity that goes astray, it gets cut off among every generation. And, and so here's where we get a, a, a picture of how this is a slow process, which they are meant to continually embody. It's not a flood that just comes in and deals with the flesh all at once. Yeah, It's a long game. Um, and then you had mentioned with that, you had mentioned the importance of the eighth day. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I do think it's worth noting how this gets brought down to the infant stage um, and it's also made as a divine commandment, not just a cultural uh, experience like That's in right. a lot of cultures. Mm-hmm. But the eighth day is also important too, because just as each person is part of the the you know the larger process of cutting off the fleshness, each person then is a reminder of new creation. All right, yeah. Right. So That's again, right. it's not going to be a flood. Um, you have seven days, and then the eighth day, mm-hmm. new creation begins. Um, and, and you'll notice too, the eighth day becomes a significant timestamp, um, throughout, throughout other parts of the text. So that's something to pay attention to. Yeah, it does. And then, and this is what I was kind of laughing about. Just think whole households had to do this together. So we make, compare this to like, do you want to get baptized? Well, you have to be of, you know, an age when you know, mm-hmm. uh, what's going on, which I think is a tenuous debate that we don't need to get into now. You need to be of some sort of age and then you have to be able to articulate the decision. Not with circumcision. No. You're part of the household. Yep. Get in. Mm-hmm. You're going along with this. And it just emphasizes the communal nature of the process. You are born into a community. It's, it's collectivism at its core. Yeah. And I think it's important to note here. That's why I am going to get into the debate a little bit. Christian baptism utilized this imagery. Oh, that's something I had not made a connection to. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so the, I, the concept of circumcision has an influential role in how Christians talked about baptism eventually. Yeah. Okay. And so take some of the stuff that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Why do I'm part of a tradition that baptizes infants? Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why. Now we're not going to have the argument here. I understand that there are two sides to that and both sides have very valid points, but that's what's going on with circumcision. So now they have this, this ritual that is going to endure, you know, not everybody does the blood path, right? Everybody does circumcision. Um, and it's going to be an important mark for Judaism uh, uh, for, for permanently, but like you see this come up in the New Testament a bunch too. So then it addresses the air issue. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is something that was brought up by uh, Christine Hayes, a scholar that um, I have depended on heavily in order to research this podcast. She points out then that because Ishmael is too old, he's... Over older than that, eighteen eight days. Um, this means that he really can't be the covenantal heir. It has to be that that idea of being that eight day mark time, and so it finally becomes explicit that it has to be Sarah's child that is the one that's the covenantal heir. And this is where Sarah's name changes. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, her name change is interesting. 
because Sarai means princess. Sarah means noblewoman. And so in a way, she kind of gets demoted. Which uh, I think isn't fair. I understand. <laughs> but uh, there's, there, there's some significance there. Mm-hmm. But even we, if we just look at it as, you know, Abraham kind of gets demoted in a way too, because he's no longer the exalted. I mean, he's still the exalted father, but it's more about now his function Right. Um, so it becomes less about Abraham and here it becomes less about uh, Sarah. Um, but it would be a descent of, of power. And so then we're kind of shown, all right, it's not going to be Ishmael. And we have this situation now. Okay, you've given a circumcision. You know, the line's going to continue. Yeah. What about the line? Because yeah. there's still no heir. Yeah. And um, then they're promised an heir. Abraham laughs. Yeah, he does. Did you want to say anything about that? Um, not really. Just that he's so he he loves Ishmael. You can see this in the story, and he kind of puts mm-hmm. forth Ishmael. Then there, God and and Abraham are having a conversation about this, and God is telling him, "You've got a seed coming. It's going to be, you know." And Abram Abraham says, "Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight," as if to say, "Remember my son here." But God isn't having it. It has to be Sarah. Yeah, it's like Abraham's like, hey, God, you're kind of you're looking for an heir. I guess what? I, we got one. That's and, right. Um, but the laughing's important, right? Because laugh in Hebrew is the word shach, and the actual heir's name in Hebrew is going to be Yitzchak, which right. means he laughs. And uh, this is going to come up again when when Isaac is going to be born. But um, there's debate on is it who, who's who's laughing? That's right. Is it God laughing? Is it mocking how Abraham laughed and Sarah laughed, or is it uh, Isaac laughing? You know, there's an old saying that says, "If you want to make God laugh, make plans." So <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Maybe this is what that's about. Yeah. Um, well, and and within that debate, uh, I've seen things that say, "Well, it's actually all of them," and uh, mm-hmm. it's 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 going to be interpreted in various ways. And we're actually going to see this come up in Genesis 22 with Isaac's name. But that is the, uh, that's the bulk of chapter 16 and 17. And what happens now is the focus becomes less on establishing the covenant and more about how the covenant unfolds. So we are going to see that the air is produced and now we're going to start getting narratives about what those interactions are like how this covenantal community develops things that go wrong things that go right mostly things that go wrong Um, and and that's going to be the bulk of genesis from here so you had that first section that was kind of setting up the narrative of of the world and then we had to set up what's the covenant about and that's kind of done now so the next chapter, Genesis 18, moving into Genesis 19, we're going to start seeing how does this work? What does it look like? What can we learn from these ancestors of ours? So we will see you next time as we get into Genesis 18 and Genesis 19.